0: As you're turning there, I will tell you that my study this week of this passage took me back to ninth grade, specifically to to Mrs. Borum's biology class. More specifically than that, to the frog dissection. And uh, it was a very sensory experience. I can still see that battered aluminum tray filled with that black substance in the bottom that I still don't know what that was, but it was uh, just soft enough that you could stick pins in it. And I remember Miss Borum opening up the tub full of specimens and wheeling them around the room with her squeaky cart and grabbing a specimen with her forceps and plunking one down in each of our trays. And then we pinned our frog down so that he wouldn't move around while we were working on him and we proceeded with our hack jobs on our frogs hopefully that they would go a little bit more successfully than the earthworm that we had previously so badly botched because none of us could cut into the earthworm without cutting all the way through the earthworm all right. but we opened up the frog and there's so very much that we could learn of all the pieces and the parts once we got inside And so this text made me think of that. And you can wonder why while I read it for you. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, this is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. may God add his blessing to the reading and the teaching of this, his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we approach your text again, and we again confess that we need help. And we thank you in advance for your willingness to help. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your continued work in that how you inspired this text, many hundreds, even thousands now, Years ago, you are the same Spirit who will work today and who will cast your light on these words and illumine them to our understanding, that you will help us, that you will cause the truth of the gospel to come alive to our hearts yet again, and indeed, perhaps for some, for the very first time. We expect this. We ask for this. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. So this big chunk of text from Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus takes me back to that frog dissection. Because there are lots of interesting pieces here when you cut into this text. Lots of individual little things that we could cut out and stab to our dissection tray and say, Ooh, isn't election interesting? Or, Ooh, how cool is adoption? Man, that sealing by the Holy Spirit is a sight to behold. Or we could look at this passage as a whole without ever severing one part from another. And so to mix metaphors, say we were going to explore one of the world's great cities. And rather than landing and taking off into the city on feet, And taking in all of the sights and the smells and the tastes and the sounds, what if at first we stayed in the plane and we observed from 30 feet above? And we noticed the contours of the land that can really only be seen from that distance. And we saw where the verdant green pastures ended and gave way to infrastructure and buildings. And we noticed how the the river winds its way from the hills and perfectly divides the city into two equal halves. See, there's beauty at the street level, but there's also beauty at 30,000 feet. And so as I wrestled with this text again this week, I think maybe even perhaps Paul wants us to look at this from 30,000 feet. Certainly we can take it apart and we can... Look at all the interesting pieces and parts, and we could talk about election. We could talk about predestination and adoption and and every little individual part. But I think there's some clues that maybe Paul wanted to to at least at some point to consider this as a whole. One of those clues is the opening to this letter to the Ephesians is, is pretty different from his other letters that he writes, which normally starts off with a Thanksgiving section right? I'm thankful to God when I remember you. I think about your faith um, and so on and so on is how he normally starts a letter. But this one is just this outburst of praise right out of the gate. Blessed be God. And as he starts off with this outburst, it is one long run-on sentence it's a grammarian's nightmare. It's 202 words long, and it's a single sentence in, in, in the Greek. I kind of picture this as sort of the child's breathless retelling of some, something great they've experienced or seen. They burst through the back door, and they say, Dad, you're not going to believe it. And then they're off to the races. And they throw together 20 sentences. And they just hook them together with a bunch of ands. And and then this happened. And then this happened. And then this. That's kind of what Paul, I think, is doing here. He's so taken by the gospel. He starts off writing this letter. And perhaps he even meant to include his normal Thanksgiving at the the beginning. He picks it up later after this passage. He's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Back to what I was thinking about. But he's overwhelmed. He's taken aback. And this is what we have. And so from 30,000 feet, the scrutiny scrutiny of all the individual parts doesn't seem quite to be the point. I don't think Paul's point here is is to give us a theological catalog of soteriological terms to define and, and to consider. That's not his point. Praise is his point. Praise is the point of this passage. And so I've I've given you your, your sentence there. Praising God for his great gospel does us a world of good. And I think praise is the point here just because of the sheer repetition. Verses 3, 6, 12, and 14 are all about praise. It starts with that blessed be the God and Father in verse 3. In verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, that we might be to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, concluding it with to the praise of his glory. Paul wants the Ephesian Christians and all the rest who would read this letter and us to praise God. That's the point. And even as I tell you that's the point of this passage, some of you might immediately think, oh, gosh, is that, is that all you've got for me? is that really all that helpful? I think I need something more substantial than that than just praise God. I need 10 steps or three tricks or something. And so if that's your tendency, let me go ahead and give you two applications to start, right? Applications at the beginning, that's kind of strange. I'm just going to introduce them to you, but I at least hopefully want to hook you so so that you'll hang with me for a few minutes here. Application number one. And I I tried to do some slides. We'll see if they work. Application number one. Your praise of God fueled by this passage can be a great hope and comfort and confidence to you when the wheels are coming off. All right. Maybe you feel like the wheels are about to come off. Maybe you feel like they already have. Your praise of God fueled by this passage will be to you comfort and hope and confidence. Application number two. Your praise of God, fueled by this passage, can be a great help to you in your struggle with temptation and sin. And so I'm 99% confident that those two applications got all of you somewhere. They certainly have me. So let's dig in and we'll circle back around to those applications at the end. Uh, The point of this passage is to praise Praising God for his great gospel does us a world of good. So, point number 1, praise God for a gospel that is glorious. It's it's his. It is his from start to finish. It's his plan, it's his design, it's his initiative, it's his goodness, it's his love, it's his mercy. There is a great godness about this passage. It's his perspective on things. Now, one of the things that I have found helpful when looking at a passage from the 30,000-foot level is to have multiple readings of the passage. All right? So I've got a, another reading of this passage up on the slides for you. And let's read it looking for how this gospel is glorious, how it is his from start to finish. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ In Him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. So whose idea was this salvation? This gospel is glorious because it's His and because he's glorious. His initiative, his plan, his power. And if we take this passage as a whole from 30,000 feet, it ought to be a tremendous comfort and confidence for you. You didn't start this thing, it wasn't because you were clever enough or good enough, or any such thing. He reached down because it brought him pleasure to do so. And he will be the one to see it through to the end. So don't make the arrogant mistake of thinking that you, or even those around you, Possess the power or the ability to thwart God's good plan for your salvation. He is the covenant keeper. Very often in spite of ourselves and in spite of others around us and our attempts to derail things left and right. If you want any proof of that, you can start in Genesis And you can read about Abraham, and you can read about Isaac, and you can read about Jacob. And you can go on and on. You can look at the plans of others trying to derail Joseph. You can look at Moses. You can go on and on and on. It's his plan. He's the faithful covenant keeper. He initiated it. He'll see it through His gospel is glorious because it's his plan. It's also glorious because it's wise and it's good. And it works perfectly to address every single need that we have. Look at verse 8. The riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. How? In all wisdom and insight. Breathtaking when you consider the whole of our salvation made up of all these individual parts and how it addresses every single need that we have. How it addresses our lack of righteousness before a holy God. How it addresses the presence of sin and rebellion in our hearts and in our lives. How it addresses the very hearts that we have that are dead and cannot and will not respond to him. How our wills and desires are bent and broken and cannot respond to the gospel call much like the brittle and dry bones in the desert wasteland could not respond to Ezekiel's call. All of these things that the law and the prophets hinted at and gave us glimpses of the problem, and glimpses of the solution in Christ, they are perfectly and beautifully revealed. It is a mystery no longer. Look at verse 9. This is what it's talking about here. Making known to us the mystery of his will. How in the world can all of our problems be dealt with, and yet God remain holy and just and true? It is a mysterious and a beautiful gospel that has been revealed and it is glorious. It is gloriously certain and sure. Verses 13 and 14, how all of these blessings, how all of these individual pieces, parts of our salvation have been sealed up for us and guaranteed with the promised Holy Spirit. Praise God for a gospel that is glorious. Secondly, praise God for a gospel that unites us to Christ. Verse 10. This mystery, this has been revealed, this plan for the fullness of time has been set forth and it's a plan to unite all things to Him. God's uniting all things in Christ. Theologians talk about this uh, with the umbrella term of union with Christ. I think we'd benefit from another 30,000 foot reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons. In him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance Till we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory at least 11 times in that passage. In him, through him. I bring this up to remind you that or, or maybe to let you know that union with Christ you've probably heard of. But I don't want you to think of union with Christ as one of many blessings that we receive in salvation. But I want you to understand union with Christ as the means by which we benefit from all the blessings. Union with Christ is not one of many. It is the means by which we benefit from all of these things. Stop for a moment and consider the essence of the gospel, if you will that the Bible tells us that we stand guilty and condemned because of our sin and rebellion against the creator of the universe. But God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so his son did two very important things for us in the gospel. First, he lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling all the law. Every I dotted, every T crossed. A perfect life, a perfect fulfillment of the law that we should have rendered to God, but we could not. He did it. That's the first thing that the Son, that God so loved the world that he sent. This is what he did. And then the second thing is he died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin and rebellion. So he did both of those things for us in the gospel, but this should give the thoughtful person pause when you consider the gospel and you consider the work that another has done for us. These things are outside of us; they've been done by another. So how do we benefit from them? It, it's it's his life. It wasn't my life. It's his death. It it wasn't my death. How do I benefit from what he did? I've got a few verses to give you that will help begin to explain this and begin to unfold this a little bit for you. Uh, They should be up on the screen, Galatians 2.20. Listen to clues about how what another has done comes to benefit me and can come to benefit you. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. A couple of pages over, Colossians 3. Verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Here's the key. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And finally, flipping back several pages to Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. You see, when we place our faith and our trust in what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. God unites us to Him by faith so that His death serves as our death, so that His righteousness counts as our righteousness, so that His resurrection guarantees ours. It's an inseparable bond. It is a union that cannot be broken. Our life, from that beautiful Colossians 3.3, is hidden with Christ. In God. It helps to make a little bit more sense of verse 3 out of our passage today. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing where? In the heavenly places. Where is Jesus today? He's ruling and reigning from the Father's right hand. And so our union with him is even more mysterious and glorious because it transcends geography and space. And he is there and we are here, but we benefit from what he has done and is doing because God has united us to him by faith. Praise God for a gospel that unites us to Christ. Resultingly, praise God for a gospel that unites us to each other. We started off there's a great godness about this passage. There's also a great usness about this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. I think you get the picture. This passage, especially at 30,000 feet, serves as a good corrective for our often overly individualized understanding of God's purposes in the gospel. salvation is, is a corporate event. Now, no, I don't want to minimize the necessity of each of us as individuals responding to the call of the gospel, of either accepting or rejecting the free offer of Jesus in the gospel. But sometimes that's the only way that we think about the gospel. Sometimes that's the only way we think about salvation is just me and Jesus. As if God did all of these things in this passage millions of different individual times. Well, I'll elect you and then I'll elect you and I'll adopt you and and then I'll... God calls to himself a people. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And so it's good for us to think about the us-ness of the gospel. Think about adoption, right? Adoption not only means that we get God as father but that we get each other as brothers and sisters. Now, some of you may look around and you may groan at that. That's just the nature of family. If we have been united in Christ, verse 10, we have necessarily been united to each other right? If I'm over here, and you're over here, and we are united in Christ, guess what? There was a necessary necessary coming together in our being united in Christ, right? There's only one Christ. There's only one in him, and so if we are all, as individuals, united in him, guess what? We're united together in him, all right? So what are the implications of that? Why bring this up? Well, if we've been united, if we are now part of one body, to use another scriptural metaphor. If we are united together into to each other. When a part of your body hurts, your body hurts. right? If you cut your hand, the mouth doesn't sit back and think, no big deal. That's the hand's problem. No, what does the mouth do? The mouth opens up and says, ah! That hurts. If you don't feel pain when some part of your body is hurting, that's a problem. Right? That's a sign of some big serious disease like leprosy. And it's very dangerous. If we've been united in Christ, we have been united To each other. If we have God as Father, we have each other as brothers and sisters. And God is to be praised for a gospel that does that. All right, let's circle back around to these applications like I promised. Application one the the praise of God, fueled by this passage, can be to us a great comfort and confidence and hope either because you fear that the wheels are going to come off, or maybe they already have, when you're thinking, all right, God is not doing this right. He does not know what he's doing. Perhaps he's not even there. Just look at my job. Just look at my finances. Just look at my marriage, at my kids, at the culture around me. Look at this Supreme Court decision. And so we need to spend time in a passage like this from 30,000 feet, To be reminded that he's been working out his plan from eternity past. And so if you think for a moment that God is up there wringing his hands or wiping the sweat from his brow. That he was at all caught off guard on a random Friday in June when five people decided something. We might just need to chill out. Before the foundation of the world, he set his glorious plan in motion. Who are you to think you can screw it up? Or who do you think your rebellious child is? or your broken marriage, or your illness, or your bankruptcy? Who are you to think that any of those things have taken God by surprise? Or has the potential to derail his plans for his people laid down before the foundation of the world? Take heart, brothers and sisters, Your praise fueled by this passage will give you the confidence to say that I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Application number two. Your praise of God, fueled by this passage, will help you with your struggles with temptation and sin. Look back to verse 4 quickly. Part of our being recipients of all of the blessings of salvation is so that, verse 4, we should be holy and blameless before him. Right, so that's part of his good design and plan and pleasure, is that we should be holy and blameless, is that we should experience progress in our battle against temptation and sin. Now where does praise fit into all of that? All right? Our praise of God fueled by this passage naturally lends itself to thanksgiving. Look at that list of blessings. Look at that list of the individual pieces, parts. How can you not, number one, praise him, and then, number two, turn around to thank him? This step is crucial. It is is vital. And we place ourselves in great danger and peril when we forsake it. I I didn't put this on the, the slide, so you can just listen. Romans 1. Now, some of you came in this morning and you were hoping that I was going to go to Romans 1. You were hoping that somebody would. But I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed because I'm going to stop short. Romans 1 beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know where the rest of this passage is leading. But do you hear that the root right there of why this passage leads where it leads is a lack of thanksgiving? Oh my. A lack of thanksgiving is a root of unrighteousness but see here's the beauty of how this works a passage like this that causes us to praise that floods our hearts with thanksgiving must necessarily along with that bring joy and humility all right joy for obvious reasons look at this list of blessings this is incredible We were rebels and enemies, and now we've been adopted as sons and daughters. How can joy not accompany that? How can humility also not accompany that? Go back to the godness of this thing. Did we do anything? Did we start this thing? Did we initiate this thing? It's got to bring with it humility as well. All right? So with praise comes thanksgiving, which brings along its cousins of joy and humility Y'all, that's a pretty crowded heart right there. There's not a whole lot of room for other stuff when our hearts are flooded and filled with praise and thanksgiving and joy and humility. A passage like this can be a great help against temptation and struggle where the lesser and the evil is crowded out by the good and the glorious and the beautiful. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank You for...